Hi. You're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. Time flies when you're learning super cool stuff. I'm Nate. And I'm Callie. If you're dropping in for the first time, welcome to Curiosity, where we aim to blow your mind by helping you to grow your mind. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back. Today, you'll learn about a new project trying to keep humans and sharks separate and safe. How all sharks almost mysteriously went extinct 19 million years ago, and how great white sharks may have contributed to the extinction of a shark twice its size. Without further ado, let's satisfy some curiosity. Nate, have you ever heard of a megalodon? Uh, weren't those the gigantic 50-foot-long ancient sharks that went extinct millions of years ago? That is right. They were so big they had mouths the size of small cars and teeth the size of fists. And we might have finally figured out why the massive creatures went extinct. It's been a controversial topic in science for a long time, but in June 2022, studies seem to have found the answer. And it's the great white shark. But great whites are only half the size of megalodons. How could such a smaller shark like the great white lead to the megalodon's extinction? Okay, well, let me give you some background first. The sharks coexisted during an era known as the Pliocene Epoch around two to five million years ago. The sharks hunted the same prey, but researchers think that the great white was the faster hunter. This speed may have allowed the great white to outcompete the larger 60-foot-long megalodon. And if you're outcompeted long enough, well, you're gonna go extinct. All right, but if this was happening literally millions of years ago, how do we know it's true? Well, researchers analyzed the diets of megalodons and modern sharks by looking at the levels of zinc in their tooth enamel. Zinc has a few isotopes, and the heavier isotope is found in plants. These heavier zincs showed up in the enamels of animals lower on the food chain, like herbivores. There is another lighter zinc isotope that shows up more in the enamels of creatures who eat primarily meat. By looking at the level of both these zincs in the 13 sets of megalodon teeth and the 20 sets of modern shark teeth, researchers were able to see where both sharks landed on the food chain. More lighter zinc, more meat-eating, higher on the food chain. Okay, I guess that makes sense. So what did they find? Well, when they looked at the megalodon and great whites, they found they both had more of the lighter zinc, meaning they ate more meat and both sat at the top of the food chain. This also means they were competing for much of the same prey, like large fish. But while they hunted the same fish, great whites, who were about half the size of megalodons, needed to eat a lot less to survive. So their smaller size actually became an evolutionary advantage? Exactly. As the species competed, megalodons' massive size put a lot of pressure on them to eat and eat a lot. But the faster great white were better at getting that prey. Over millions of years, this lopsided competition seems to have unseated the megalodon as the dominant predator of the ocean and led to its extinction. Were there any other factors, or were great whites just that much better? While great whites are likely the main reason, they certainly weren't the only one. Over the course of millions of years, changing climate and shrinking populations of prey could have also contributed to extinction. But there's a lot of evidence that the megalodon struggled to keep up with its own diet, even at the best of times. For instance, there's a lot of evidence in fossil records that megalodons took part in cannibalism. Ooh, that's grisly. As babies, megalodons would hatch from their <laughs> eggs and then immediately eat their siblings right out of the eggs. Oof. Yeah. As massive and scary as the megalodon was, even it couldn't compete with the impressive great white. Hey, did you know that researchers recently found that 19 million years ago, almost all of Earth's sharks died out and we don't really know why? Was it because of the asteroid strike that got so many of the dinosaurs? That asteroid strike was actually 66 million years ago. And researchers know it killed around 30 to 40% of all sharks. But for nearly 50 million years or so after that, sharks were the top dogs of the ocean. 
That is, until about 19 million years ago, when over 90% of the shark population died, and nobody knows why. How did we find out about this massive die-off, then? Sharks don't leave fossils, do they? Sharks' bodies are largely made from cartilage, which don't usually fossilize. Thankfully, though, their skin is covered in tiny scales called dermal denticles, and these can fossilize. Okay, how do scales prove a die-off, though? A pair of researchers from the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine, sifted through ocean sediment to find and examine fossilized shark scales as well as fish teeth. And they found something pretty surprising. From about 66 million to 19 million years ago, there was a consistent 5 to 1 ratio of fish teeth to shark scales in the sediment. But if you looked at fossils just 100,000 years younger, the ratio changes dramatically to 100 fish teeth for every shark scale. Dude, that is a huge change. Were there any clues at all to what happened? Well, this near-extinction event seems to coincide with a change in the shape of shark scales. Most modern sharks have straight grooves on their scales, which some researchers think boosts their efficiency in the water. But by looking at those fossilized scales they found in the sediment, researchers discovered that most of the sharks from before this die-off didn't have those grooves. But by looking at these fossilized scales they found in the sediment, researchers discovered that most of the sharks from before this die-off didn't have those grooves. It's a clue, but they're still not sure what the change in scales tells us. That's an odd detail, but scale grooves can't be the only reason for 90% of sharks to die, can they? The researchers really aren't sure. We have a lot of new questions without a lot of answers. We also don't know what effect the die-off had on the rest of the ocean, or how the sharks were able to rebound. And that's knowledge we could really use today. Over the past 50 years, climate change and overfishing have decreased the Earth's shark population by 70%. Dude, that's almost as bad as this past extinction. Exactly, which is why the researchers are so invested in figuring out what caused that ancient shark die-off and how the shark populations recovered. If we can figure that out, we might be better equipped to help the sharks rebound after the last 50 years of hardships. Well, I mean, is there anything we can do as citizens to help? We can do all we can to fight climate change and do our best as consumers to avoid products that contain shark meat. Importantly, we can also support the researchers doing the work trying to protect sharks. Some of my favorite organizations are Save Our Seas, the OCs Foundation, Wild Aid, and Shark Stewards. Look them up online to see how you can pitch in. Okay, I've got an incredible story today about a scientist creating an underwater barrier to help sharks and humans live in harmony by keeping us all apart. Oh, are we talking shark deterrence today? Is it some kind of net? Close, but way cooler. We spoke with Dr. Craig O'Connell from the OC's Conservation Foundation, who is working with his team on what they call the exclusion barrier. It uses a combination of a permanent magnet and electromagnets to repel sharks through their electrosensory system. Electrosensory? That's so cool. How does that work? We'll get there. But first, let's talk about shark deterrence. The idea is to create products, systems, and infrastructure that limit shark and human interactions and avoid attacks. Scientists like Dr. O'Connell who do this work are known as conservation engineers. Using the power of engineering to conserve our planet. That's so cool. But can't we just avoid sharks? Why do we need whole systems? Okay, so shark deterrence became a big focus, especially for the military, after the tragedy of the USS Indianapolis. In World War II, a Japanese sub sank the USS Indianapolis, and in the days that followed, many sailors died in their life rafts from thirst, starvation, and, terrifyingly, repeated shark attacks. In situations like this, we can't always avoid sharks, so scientists wanted to create ways to make them avoid us. Hmm, okay, well, what kinds of things have we tried in the past? 
O'Connell says many of the past efforts were chemical, like a soap with a pH that sharks hated, or pheromones collected from sharks and used to scare off other sharks. And while these can be effective, they're susceptible to the flow of water. They work great if they float between the shark and you, but if they flow the wrong way in the ocean's often strong and unpredictable currents, they might not reach the shark, or the shark might simply swim around them. Okay, what if we just gave everyone in the ocean a shark cage like you see those divers in? (laughs) Well, some municipalities tried something pretty close. They'll string up giant nets in the water to keep sharks out of popular swimming and recreation areas, but those often entangle dolphins, whales, and sea turtles as well, killing them by accident. What's worse, some municipalities just try to kill as many sharks as possible to limit attacks. Okay, well that's just awful. Yeah, Dr. O'Connell thought so too, and that's why he started working on the exclusion barrier. And it doesn't use nets. Right. It relies on the shark's electrosensory system, right? Are you going to finally tell me what that is? (laughs) Yeah. Shark snouts are covered with tiny dots that allow them to detect magnetic fields. These dots are called ampullae of Lorenzini and give sharks a whole sixth sense that we just don't have. They're able to pick up electromagnetic signals from the Earth, but also from the tiniest muscle contractions of their prey, even down to, like, their heartbeats. It allows sharks to find their prey even if they can't see them. I know some animals navigate by magnetic field, but I had no idea sharks hunted with them. It's cool, right? Well, Dr. O'Connell thought we might be able to use the shark's sensitivity to our advantage. The exclusion barrier is a system of PVC pipes that stretch from the seafloor to the sea surface. Inside, they have a big permanent magnet and an electromagnet powered by a smaller internal water turbine that makes electricity as water flows in and out of the pipe. These magnets create an electromagnetic field that the sharks really don't like. It overwhelms those sensitive electromagnetic receptors, so they steer clear even if there's delicious bait on the other side. Okay, why do you need the two different types of magnets? Well, if it was just permanent magnets, Dr. O'Connell says the sharks might get used to the magnetic field. But by adding an electromagnet, it creates a pulsing magnetic field, which is much harder for the sharks to get used to. So it's more effective over a longer period of time. And are these just going to be placed randomly in the water? The researchers have them stretching from shoreline to shoreline in places like coves so they can create a safe zone where humans and sharks can coexist separately. Sharks on one side, humans on the other. Okay, well, what about those other animals that rely on electromagnetic fields as well? Are they affected? Dr. O'Connell says so far they haven't seen any signs of attraction or deterrence from any species other than sharks. Okay, that's a pretty good start then. So does it work on all the types of sharks? Well, all sharks have this electrosensory system, but they don't all rely on it equally. The barrier has the additional benefit of being a large infrastructure installation, which can deter visual hunters like great whites that might not be as affected by the electromagnetic fields, but would steer clear of the system of large pipes. While it seems to be working on most sharks, O'Connell says there's no silver bullet in shark deterrence. We need multifaceted approaches that use all of our effective deterrent technology, including those chemical deterrents. Well, it all sounds pretty great. Happy humans, happy sharks. So when will I start seeing these systems put into the water? In September 2022, Dr. O'Connell and his team will be installing a 50 to 100 foot section in Cape Cod in a cove popular with sharks for a two to three week test. He says it'll be a true test of the technology's ability to deter sharks and withstand harsh weather and seas. I hope it all goes well. Me too, because the research team will be putting bait in the water to see just how much of a deterrence the barrier really is, 
while they watch from inside shark cages in the cove. Ooh, talk about putting your money where your mouth is. Dr. O'Connell says for him, helping sharks is worth even those scary moments. And he hopes that with a successful test, his not-for-profit OCs Foundation can soon help municipalities the world over install these barriers to keep humans and sharks safe. If you want to learn more, you can check out his foundation or see him lending his expertise on many Shark Week shows. Let's recap what we learned today to wrap up. Conservation engineers are working on a system that they hope will deter shark attacks without ever touching a shark. The exclusion barrier system creates an electromagnetic field to drive sharks and their sensitive electrosensory systems away from populated areas. Over 19 million years ago, a mysterious event wiped out almost 90% of the sharks on Earth. Researchers don't know why, but discovering how sharks rebounded from that near extinction may help protect today's dwindling shark population. Researchers recently found that despite being smaller, the great white shark outcompeted the 50-foot shark monster known as the megalodon for prey. The findings ended a long debate about the reasons for the creature's extinction. Curiosity Daily is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Discovery. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Our Discovery executive producer is Christina Bavetta. Our Discovery coordinating producer is Krishna San Nicholas. This show is hosted by us, Callie Gade and Nate Bonham. Our showrunner is Matt Mayer. Our writers are James Lynch and Jordan Trout. Our researcher is Thomas Martin Messersmith. Sound design, audio engineering, and editing by Nick Carissimi. I'm Callie Gade. And I'm Nate Bonham. We'll see you next week. 